This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing new Firehouse Pairs. Pair your favorite small sub with a signature side, like the awesome five cheese mac and cheese. And remember, a portion of every purchase at Firehouse Subs goes towards helping first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating in locations only, Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase. So I'm sitting here today with Steve Holland uh, from Plantersville, Mississippi. Uh, Steve, I appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk with me a little bit. My pleasure, brother. Uh, You are my first of what's going to be a series of interviews with uh, my compadres in the legislature. I'm honored. I'm honored. I'm honored. Well, the honor's all mine. Tell me, um, you're you're from Plantersville. How close is that to Tupelo? That's uh, seven miles exactly from Elvis's birthplace. And Ten miles from the courthouse, uh, nine miles from the courthouse in downtown Tupelo. Y'all pretty proud of Elvis up there, aren't you? Love that mother. <laughs> Shoot, what are you talking about? He ain't uh, nothing but a hunk of hunk of burning love to us. How much uh, tourism is generated by Elvis' it's, birthplace? It's the largest tourist attraction in the state of Mississippi, the Elvis' large, birthplace. largest in the state. You know, people I don't think in Mississippi realize this, but uh, there are those that have studied this. And, and the name Elvis, singularly, is second in knowledge of all mankind to Jesus Christ. No. Yes, it is, too. And so that's that Elvis. You just say Elvis, you yeah. know. It's yeah. been well, interesting to be, yeah, it's been interesting to be Elvis's representative for 35 years, you know. 35 years. That's how 30. long you've been in the Mississippi oh, yeah. legislature? Oh, yeah. How old were you when you started, Steve? 27. Were you married then? I was, uh, I was <laughs> uh, literally turned 27 on Election Day, November the 5th that year. Were you married when you got elected? I was. I'd just gotten married. Okay. I mean, literally just gotten married. So. I had heard there was a story behind that that uh, you've told in my presence a couple times. And um, if it, if I remember it right, you got married and basically got elected and said, goodbye, I'm going down to, to Jackson to the right. Mississippi Right, and, and we've been together uh, 35, be soon 36 years, and uh, we're doing fine independently. <laughs> what is your wife's name, Steve? Gloria. Gloria Temple. And what does Gloria do? Gloria just retired uh, after about a 45-year career as a licensed professional counselor, mental health therapist, marriage and family counselor slash psychologist, spending most all of her time to North Mississippi Medical Center in Tupelo. And you have um, an affinity toward the North Mississippi Medical Center and, and health care in general and mental health in particular, don't you? Well, I do. I really do. Uh, health. Uh, when I came down here, I had uh, I had spent three years in Washington D.C. working at the feet of Chairman Jamie Whitten, United States Congress Appropriations Chair in the House, and I got some pretty valuable experience there. Just to tell you the truth, old Codger Whitten knew how to run a program, you know, and and so uh, I. Part of what I did for Mr. Whitten was get into health care, and it just it carried right on over. It was just a natural for me. I did transportation, health care, and agriculture for him, which were three big things for state of Mississippi. And I learned a lot, a lot learned a lot of the national players at that time, and then ran for the legislature and got elected and went immediately into health care. And I've been that's been my passion ever since I've been here. I want to talk more about that in just a minute, but before we do, um, tell me about your mama. 
Oh, Lord, have mercy. I love my mama. I'm a mama's baby. Mama had six babies. There wasn't but about seven and three-quarters years between the youngest and oldest. Said you might be a redneck, by God, if you got a brother born in the same year that you're born in and you're not twins. <laughs> uh, we had a lot of babies. We were a farm family and uh, all boys. They needed all farm boys, hands. farm hands. No girls. Mother declares she was just hell-bent to get a girl, but it never happened. She had six boys, but uh, Where mother, did you fall in that I'm, I'm third from the top and fourth from the bottom. Okay. So that's sort of a middle child syndrome kind of situation. Uh, but mother has just been, she's one of the most remarkable, truly modern Renaissance women that I've ever known in my life. She was the first woman public school bus driver in the state of Mississippi. Uh, she was the first woman selected nationally by Farm Bureau and Progressive Farmers, a national farm woman of America in 1965. She was the first woman elected mayor of Nettleton. She was the first woman justice court judge ever elected uh, in the uh, Lee County, Mississippi, and she's still just doing first. She's 86 years old, still sits on the bench. Still a justice court judge. Oh, my God. Absolutely revered and beloved at home. I had a situation. She likes Chinese food, and we've got a nice little Chinese restaurant in Tupelo. And we were out one one afternoon late getting a good meal, and this burly, dreadlock-infested, big old pot-gutted black man came running up to my mother from across the way. And when he got to her, he just grabbed her and picked her up with a big old bear hug, and it sort of flipped me out. And I said, oh, buddy, be careful. That's my mother. <laughs> and he said, yes, sir, Mr. Rep. said, I know it's your mama. Said yo, mama saved my life. Said she, she. I was up for her for my third cocaine charge in her court, and she brought me right on up, set me down right beside her in front of God and everybody. Said I'm gonna give you the harshest sentence the law requires, plus drug rehab, and I expect to see you in a couple of years, and you better be clean and straight. And sure enough, he said he went and did his sentence and. Uh, and got back with his family. Everything went well. Did the drug court. Da 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 da. And he was working and doing fabulous. His family was back together. So he was just saying to mom in his own wonderful way, "You saved my life." So she's that kind of woman. She's, I, I she's imagine incredible. she's had that kind of impact on a lot of people's lives, Steve. It, well, it, it's it's just interesting. I mean, you know, we are in the funeral business. So when you're the local undertaker and a judge and sort of politician, you it's a pretty interesting. Uh, web. Uh, I just, I, I just don't think mother could do anything to make people mad at her. She's, she's got that kind of persona about her and that kind of mo. That's a and, gift, and it's a gift. It is a gift, definitely. And I got a little of it. I think myself. Uh, I let the rough Steve. side drag a little bit, like my <laughs> daddy. But uh, uh, mother is just phenomenal. And her name locally, her name's Sadie. And Sadie is a wonderful old name. I mean, just a one. It's it's Sadie's having a renaissance. People are do calling their dogs, their babies, and everything else Sadie now. I like it's, that name. It's amazing because you don't have a lot of Sadies. It went away many years ago. But uh, anyway, you can just say Sadie in Lee County, and they they automatically know. It's when I mother. was a kid, my grandparents on my daddy's side had some friends, and the, the woman was named Sadie, and her husband was Speedy. Oh wow! And I always remember Speedy. Speedy and Sadie. Speedy, cool. Speedy yeah. had an old Jeep, old Willis Jeep, and he liked to hunt. And he had dogs. He'd ride around the back, 
and one time his dog stepped in one of his guns, loaded, and shot him in the butt. <laughs> my grandma had to pick. Only, my grandma only, had to pick bits of a shot out of him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I'm crazy about my mother, and we spend a lot of time together. She's almost my best friend, and and uh, we, we, I just draw strength from her every time I'm around her. Uh, she has not been to a doctor for any damn thing in 58 and a half years. Uh, she's a lucky woman. Uh, she even got a ricin' scare. Some folks might remember that. A uh, erstwhile fellow that was a former opponent of mine sent ricin, homemade ricin, to President Obama, Senator Wicker, and uh, I remember that. And my mother. And, of course, mother receives her own mail. The others are intercepted by various concerns but mother opened hers and there it was she said i did what any country woman could do would do i gave it the smell test and said it sort of smelled like shit to me (laughs) (laughs) so i imagine she threw it in the Uh, she she put it on her desk and she called the sheriff which (laughs) was the right thing to do and then he intervened but interestingly enough the fbi sequestered mother after that i don't know why and and they called me i sort of wound up being the spokesman for that whole ordeal but uh, they uh, they called me and they said, we're taking your mother to Oxford and she'll be safe there. You won't have to worry about her. But we want her to check into Baptist Hospital over there and, and get a physical and, and a profile and make sure everything's okay. And I said, good damn luck. She don't even haunt when she goes by a hospital. She just don't do health care. She treats herself and she's been well since the last Holland baby boy was born. And so that's just the way it is. Well. I got a call about 7 a.m. the next day from the FBI guy, and he says, your mama's still sitting in the back seat of the car. We've been here since 6.30, and she won't get out. I said, doubt she'll get out all day, but good luck. Well, about two hours later, he called and said, she's still in the back seat. Lunch went through. About 2.30 or 3, he called, and he said, we cannot. I mean, I, is it okay if we just take your mother into the emergency room? I said, I don't believe I'd do that if I were y'all, but you, the FBI, you can do what you want to do. Finally, he called me back 30 minutes later, and he said, we got it resolved. The doctor came out to the car and drew blood. <laughs> Curbside service. Curbside service for the judge. You don't you get know? that very often. Well, Listen, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you she off. Can't, she has a hearing problem. That's her only problem. And mother's done pretty well in life to be 86. She and dad divorced when she was 50, and she started out on her own then, so to say. But she was well prepared and, and properly vouched for even at that time. And and so she uh, she's made real well. But I buy, I buy her hearing aids because she won't take a salary. Mother's interesting. She she raises cane every April 15th because she has to pay taxes. She don't understand why an 86-year-old ought to pay that kind of taxes. And I said, because you got so damn much money, Mama. That's your problem. It don't matter what age you are, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she I bought her the hearing aids, and she don't buy batteries for them. So. Well, Steve, you you mentioned your father. Uh, he passed uh, a couple last of years year, ago, or, a in, couple in years June ago. of, of uh, 2016, yeah. Tell me a little bit about him. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You're talking about one of the great characters of all times in the Appalachian Hills of northeast Mississippi. He, he, uh, he was a bad, bad high school football player. Grew up on a farm, too. His father, my grandfather, graduated in 1923 from Mississippi State in the same class with Senator John C. Stennis. I didn't even know that. Uh, dad, my granddad, Papa Holland, was scared of debt, so he got a, a land grant. He fought in World War One, and received three Purple Hearts and started having all these children. 
and uh, settled in Starkville under the first GI Bill and got a degree in agriculture from Mississippi State, went back home and could have bought half of Lee County because there were very few agricultural graduates, as I understand it, in 1923. But he was scared of debt, and he wound up buying a 160-acre farm. I think he paid $7 an acre for it back then, and he died on that farm uh, at 89. And uh, he, he just never would borrow money. But boy, my daddy wasn't scared of death. <laughs> Hell, he would have he would have sucked all the gold out of Fort Knox and made an attempt at something, and uh, he made it big. He he wound up being the first Mississippian ever named Outstanding Farmer of America in 1965. I didn't know as that. a very young man. Uh, and so that's 1965 was the same year that your mom yeah, won some award. Right? Yeah, that's right. She got okay. the award as the lady. A, a farm woman of the year, and Dad got the farmer of the How year. How about that? All and it was a big to do. It was, I mean, you know, you can't say it's like a Miss America contest, but it is for agriculture. Yeah. All fifty states participate in a state contest. State winners get together, and there's one winner nationally. Daddy was it that year. But by that time, let's see, Dad would have been in his mid thirties then. Uh, he already had about six thousand acres of land uh, and started with nothing. Uh, and he just, I, I remember hearing Daddy say he didn't want all the land in Mississippi, just all that that joined him, you know. <laughs> and uh, by gosh, he, by the time he retired in his 60s, uh, he had farmed about 12,000 acres by that time. So he did pretty good. He, he, was a, he just was a character, though. He loved his adult beverages, and he thought big and lived big and large and, and died large, you know, so uh, 87 years old. So. He had a wonderful life. I got a lot of his traits, too. It, so. it sounds to me like hearing you describe your mother and your father that you have a pretty good mix of both of them. I got a pretty good mix of both, yeah. I'm, I, I hope to think as as the older years uh, ensue for me that I'm more like my mama than my daddy. But daddy cleaned up his crap a little bit in the last 20 years. You know, uh, age will cure what character wants sometimes. That's a good one. Yeah. Let's let's um, talk for just a minute about the Mississippi legislature. All right. You've been a part of the Mississippi legislature now for 35 years. 35 years. What was it like back when you started? Well, I started in the era of Buddy Newman being speaker. And, of course, I we that was the class of 1983. And we were elected. Most all of us were elected. There were 51 of us, I believe, in that class. And, and, and That's a big class. That's a huge it? class. And, it's almost and, half of the House of Representatives. Yes, almost half. Out. And uh, it was some really bright people. I'm not being vain when I say that. But uh, let, let's just say formally educated people, uh, mostly young whippersnappers like me in our 20s and 30s, uh, who beat establishment politicians by and large. We ran against establishment. You know, you got your contract with America and let's make America great again now and all this. We we won that we were going to change the way business was done in the state legislature in Mississippi, and by golly, we did. I mean, there's what no did dancing. was there a particular issue uh, that that people had problems well, with we, the state we, legislature? We had, over? You know, we had so struggled with it, with public education since integration, and uh, <clears throat> education was a big platform that we ran on then. Uh, we just didn't think that education was number one, getting the funding. Uh, you know, uh, still, uh, the kindergarten vote had happened. The Education Reform Act of 82 had just passed. Uh, the legislature had stayed in special session a long time to get that passed. And 
we wore a lot of our incumbents out by, you know, I remember my ad was, where's your representative today? He's in yet another special session in Jackson. They're not together enough to get it done in 90 days, so they have to spend your tax money for special sessions. But timing was good for that class. And 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 the the body the 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 content the quality of the people that came in that year was fairly phenomenal. It was a very diverse group of folks, but by and large, well educated folks. And the Delta had run the Mississippi legislature for the last twenty to thirty years, and uh, we we ran not against the Delta, but against the Delta mentality that existed at that time. And uh, we were able to topple it. Buddy Newman had been speaker, I guess, eight or 12 years by that time. And uh, we grew as that term uh, went through that first four years of being in office. And we got it to the crescendo point that we were able to go in and say to Mr. Newman as he was contemplating reelection, you got two choices. You can run for reelection if you want to, and we'll vote you out as speaker next year. Or you can just announce your resignation, and I was a part of that. It was a pretty interesting time. So and you we, were a part of that group that oh, yeah. basically oh, yeah. um, was overthrew, a revolutionary yeah, type group re- that, re- that overthrew the type. power structure in the House. Well, I, I had been a, as, a, as an undergraduate at Mississippi State, and even a f- big old fraternity man, I had joined a group called the Fuzzy Buffers up there, which uh, in essence was not so much throwing out the fraternity system at Mississippi State of leadership – but allowing uh, the GDIs, the independents, to have a say-so. And we elected a guy, president of the student body my senior year, named Sam Cox. He's crossed the chilling waters of Jordan now, but he was a— Is, that a, is that a technical term for your yeah, uh, is that like industry term? It's an industry across <laughs> the chilling waters of Jordan. Uh, but he, uh, he posed for his official campaign uh, uh, picture in front of the statute of S.D. Lee on the drill field— with nothing but a loincloth around him, and he had a big beard and a big ponytail, and he was elected brilliant man. He was elected president of the student body, and we all filled the Senate and the the the, the campus cabinet with, uh, shall we say, interesting types, types that had not been traditionally in leadership. So I, I'd had a little training on that too. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, we, we turned this thing around, and we elected Tim Ford speaker in – 1988, I guess it was. Let's see. Yeah, 1988. Uh, and Tim was a – he had been elected to class before. as about a 25-year-old. And he would come out of Ole Miss as a big student leader over there and fraternity man. And and uh, he, he just was the least controversial man at that time to be elected speaker. There were several vying for it, some old veterans. Uh, but – Nobody could get a consensus vote, and Tim sort of emerged out of the ashes, and we elected him speaker, and he remained speaker for the next 16 years. So uh, we carried the power structure from the Delta over to the hills, quite frankly, of northeast Mississippi, and ran it not only through Tim's uh, years as speaker, but eight years of Billy McCoy to follow him as speaker. And so now it's changed and gone back to central Mississippi. And so what I've uh, heard about Speaker Newman is that he was – Sort of hard-handed, uh, heavy, heavy-handed, uh, and that Speaker Ford was somewhat of a reformer and more oh, inclusive. Oh my Lord, Speaker Ford was—he was just <clears throat> so wonderful to get along with. And of course, we were all Democrats then, but there was a big conservative uh, uh, segment of Democrats, and and uh, there were Republicans were emerging by '88, uh, 
92, uh, and then Fordyce gets elected governor, and of course then we started a tsunami of Republicans shortly thereafter. Uh, but uh, he, he was not really party-oriented. He was extraordinarily issue-oriented. And if you were a member of the legislature, he didn't care if you were red, yellow, black, white, woman, man, uh, Republican or Democrat, if you were willing to work, put some sweat equity in and keep your nose clean, uh, you could climb all the way to the top. He gave you that opportunity. And because of that era of good feeling and inclusiveness, uh, oh, we passed some phenomenal legislation in his tenure as uh, as speaker of the House. I want to talk about some of um, the legislature's accomplishments during that period under Speaker Ford. But let me ask you before we go there, can you draw any comparisons between when you ran in 1983 and where we are in Mississippi today with legislative races coming up next year? Well, we're we're in the scorched earth politics and it's party purity and and uh, I, I really don't care for that. I mean, you know, uh, I've always been a Democrat and I guess I'll die a Democrat. I'd just soon be an independent, quite frankly, at this point in my political career because I'm I'm free. I'm pretty well personally and politically free at this juncture in my career after these many years. And I'm an issues kind of man anyway, but the issues that I espouse, education, highways, health care, uh, economic development, are Democratic Party issues as much or more than they are Republican Party issues, especially public education. Hey, everybody, this is Ed Ellington. PJ Lee and I are the producers of Civil Conversations. I just wanted to say thank you for stopping by and checking out this series. If you like what you're hearing out of David, if you think that he's the type of guy that uh, we need in Washington, uh, especially in a, a time like this, uh, I want to encourage you to go to barriaformississippi.com. That's B-A-R-I-A for Mississippi.com and support David. Get to know a little bit more about him, about his background, about the things he's done throughout his career to help your everyday average folks like myself. And uh, if you want a man like that in, in Washington to serve, then I, I really encourage you to get behind David support his campaign if you can't if you can't support him with your money support him by getting other people to listen to this podcast um, thank you so much for checking out this episode I really hope you will subscribe rate review and share the word because um, in my opinion David is the type of guy we need in Washington now more than ever and so were uh, those issues important and and front burner if you will back in 1983 too well, they, they were, but not to the degree that they are now. Uh, it was uh, it was two Northeast Mississippi legislators, Billy McCoy and John David Pennebaker, for example, that, that created the AHEAD movement, which led to the 1987 highway program, which literally brought Mississippi into the modern age of a transportation system, four-lane roads, access roads, et cetera. Uh, and we're still reaping the benefits of that. Uh, but uh, today, you know, you got to be in the right political party and say the right things. And you, basically, you got to be numb brained, if you will, to just follow. You know, there's only a few leaders, and the, everybody else follows, and, and they do what they're told these days. And we didn't have that. We were just as free back then to introduce an idea and see it to fruition as. It didn't matter what the idea was. There wasn't that kind of top-down control. Legislation flowed up from the grassroots. 
And I, I just think democratic government should be that. A, a legislative body is a, a marketplace of ideas and a laboratory of democracy. And and so when you're told what to do or what you can't do, uh, you know, you don't get the same kind of public policy out of that. So, so. so what you're describing, it sounds to me like under um, Speaker Ford, is a group of uh, young and energetic and bright people who were concerned about issues more than party. And if they had a good idea, then that good idea was allowed a hearing, so to speak. And the best ideas ultimately became, they were enacted as policy for the state of Mississippi. Absolutely. And and of course, you you hit a buzzword that is so lacking now is hearings. You know, we would have a hearing on anything. I chaired agriculture for the 16 years. Was that your first chairmanship? Uh That was my first chairmanship. Uh, uh, agriculture. I chaired that for 16 years under Ford. And I mean, we had some, oh my gosh, knockdown, drag out battles. Uh, we took on uh, uh, poultry integrators, for example, who were actually practicing indentured servitude toward the, the producers, the own farm people, and won. And, a, and a, under a Republican governor who signed the bill, interestingly enough. But uh, that's the kind of thing that created a lot of controversy and didn't necessarily have to happen. But I, I was, as chairman, I was a hands-on chairman in the sense that I took my off-season and I would literally go from Tunica to Pascagoula and from Corinth to Natchez, uh, Woodville, checking farm scenes out as chairman. I loved it. Oh, I just loved that 16 years. It was a time of uh, of great enlightenment for me and and the and the period of time that I really got this photo opportunity visiting literally every county in the state of Mississippi, being on farms, taking part in farm events, speaking to agricultural groups and and having hearings on various issues like with catfish farmers in the Delta, which was a fledging industry then and we were helping them get things together, research through the land grants and and that kind of thing. So that's where I learned Mississippi as agriculture chairman. But anything I wanted to do, the speaker did not get in my way. And you, you couldn't do that today if you wanted to. Well, people who are listening may not understand <clears throat> the importance of uh, these these trips around the state to learn what's going on in each in every county or the importance of hearings on particular issues. Can you explain a little bit more about why it's important to have a hearing before something comes from the top down, as you described? Well, absolutely. I mean, anything, it's sort of like planting a seed. It's very elementary. You put the seed in the ground and then you nurture it as it goes along. And uh, same thing has to happen with a legislative idea. And there's nothing better with that legislative idea than to take it on the road, so to say. In rural Mississippi, not everybody can always come to the capital. So in the off-season, we always used our time uh, very judiciously, I think, to take these issues to the people in various forums, uh, town hall meetings or, or you know, a farm bureau gathering or Delta Council in the Delta or or the Hattiesburg area, the coast, the the uh, uh, seafood folks and the, and the shrimpers and so forth, uh, all that legislation at that time came through the Agriculture Committee, and we would just go down and visit with these folks. Number one, we got a lot of legislation, legislative ideas from them. They would tell us what their problems were, what their issues were with the state, how the state might could do some little something to improve 
their small business situation and their way of life and their bottom line. And you don't get any of that now. That just don't happen now. We don't have hearings anymore. Once you got those ideas out in the field, you would come January through March during the session, and some of those leaders, you would, you would, you would literally identify the leaders in various fields uh, of endeavors and bring them back to the Capitol. You would work up a bill through the legal staff here, introduce it, and then start a series of hearings here through the subcommittee, the full committee, then on the floor of the House and Senate. And we don't have that anymore. It just don't exist. They're telling me we got just a few minutes left. So I want to move to uh, 2011 uh, when the Republicans took over the Mississippi House of Representatives for the first time in 100 years. Um, You had been serving as chairman of public health for the last eight years. Uh For eight years. Uh Um, What happened when the Republicans took over in 2011? Well, for one thing, they threw all the Democrats out. And uh, and and they part practice single party leadership. Um, so we were. Uh, Did people, you remain on the health committee? You no, had this experience. I, I, I was on... even banished from the health committee itself, health and Medicaid. I, I didn't serve on either one. And how, I had how... been chairman of the subcommittee in appropriations on health care issues, voc rehab, mental health, uh, public health department, Medicaid. For twenty-four consecutive years, didn't even get on that. So, so in that period of time, you develop um, what I often hear referred to as institutional knowledge about a particular oh, yeah. issue. Well, what what effect does it have when you take that institutional knowledge and just take it and put it in a closet and say we well, don't want to? We don't what, talk what, to you. what what happens is number one, you develop a hell of a high level of frustration, which I did. I really thought about walking after about the. After the 11 session, I'm going, I don't know if I can stand this another day. Not that it wasn't that I wasn't in control, quote, unquote, if I ever had been in control, but I didn't even have a seat at the table. Well, with all of this wealth of knowledge, uh, I did not even have a seat at the table. So anything that I wanted to do, I had to do with microphone in hand on the floor of the House, which is the worst way to shape public policy and the hardest way. To do it now, I had some I had some success because, especially in the area of Medicaid, I had handled that literally for twenty four years, for the House of Representatives, and uh, nope, I, 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 I made a horrible mistake in the twenty four years in that I really didn't bring anybody along with me. There were one or two that were interested that provided some uh, help, but. Uh, I was literally the Medicaid authority for the House, well, and I and guess you, folks assumed I was going to be there forever. And you may not say this about yourself, but I'll say it. You had a very strong hand in shaping Mississippi's Medicaid program oh, over that time. Every modern tenant of the Medicaid program came from from the works that we that I had a leadership role in over the last quarter of a century. Um, so that that uh, institutional knowledge was just essentially ignored for, for the last six Absolutely. years or so. That's right. Um, what what if anything can we do now uh, as a minority party uh, to to try to uh, have an impact on policies that are important to Mississippians, like our Medicaid program, or like uh, you know infrastructure, roads and bridges, and like public education? Well, the first thing we have to do is is keep hope alive and and keep ourselves energized and our resolve strengthened because on issues like Medicaid and public education, I'll say, and even transportation, it is the minority party that that has the vision for that, not the majority party. 
And so we, we cannot, even as frustrated as we are, we cannot allow the vision to die. That's first and foremost. We keep that alive. But, you know, I think we just keep chipping away, and you hope sooner or later the people will come back to the mother's milk a little bit and realize in the most impoverished state in the nation, we got to have the federal government. we got to have a strong Medicaid program, which for $1 of health care that 49 other states give us $3. Hallelujah, what a bargain, you know, and it provides health care for our citizens. We've got to keep pushing for realistic ways to get a good transportation system. And we've certainly got to continue to work on public education funding and viability. And it's tough. It's tough for me after 35 years. I could go home. I'm a very successful businessman at home. And, man, I'm to the grandkid stage now of my life. And Gloria's retired. And and uh, I could sit on my farm and sip good damn bourbon whiskey and read my 2,000 books and and chill out if I wanted to, but there's still a job to do, so you stay on the job. You're still passionate about. Oh, by God, I wouldn't be in Jackson, Mississippi for love nor money if I wasn't passionate. It's just that simple. Now, my passion gets my ass in trouble a lot, but uh, Well, on a personal note, Steve, uh, I enjoy your passion. I'm glad that you still have it after this long serving the state of Mississippi, and it's been one of the great privileges of my life to get to sit right next to you for the well, last six years. I don't think I had a choice, though, did I? I, 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 I put you there for a reason <laughs> because I needed your brain and your help. Oh, you got plenty of, yeah, of brains. No. All right. I think they're asking us to wrap up. Steve okay. Holland, the gentleman from Lee, uh, Plantersville more particularly, I very much appreciate your time it's here today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, as always. You bet. Very great. Before we move. Uh, if I can get you to, I'm Edward Ellington, by the way. Edward, good yes, to see you, brother. You know, uh, Ed, Edward's dad is Ed Ellington, the bankruptcy judge. Oh my God! He also served yeah, in the Senate. Yeah, I think. yeah. yeah. I, 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 I forced I him out of the legislature. Yeah, Ed. I remember Ed though. Is Ed still alive? He is. He is. Well, I never see him anymore. Shit. When I don't see anybody for four or five years, I assume they cross the chilling waters. Well, you know? knowing knowing that he's a bankruptcy judge is a good thing. Uh, you don't uh, see damn him. right. I don't. But, um, I'm, I'm a long way from bankruptcy. Just need you to say my name's. Steve my name is yeah, my yeah, name yeah, is yeah. Steve Holland. I represent District 16, which is Lee County, Mississippi, home of Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Did we get that? And then, um, how many? Can, just how many people? What, like, I know you can't do it very briefly, but what's the? Why did we give the money back? Like, what? Who, how many people have come off of uh, uh, when we refused federal money? How many people came off of, or became uninsured? Is that, is that no, no, that's that's not the issue. The issue was if we would have received the uh, the expanded. money, if we'd expanded, we would have included about another two fifty, three hundred people, uh, working people. That's right. The working we call them the working poor. Yeah, the two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand Mississippians. You want to talk about that? Yeah, if you can just explain that decision. What? Okay. So, so Steve, they want us to talk just uh, for a minute about Mississippi's decision to refuse money from the federal government under the ACA uh, that we would have gotten had we expanded Medicaid. So, if you could just tell the people who are listening what that would have done for Mississippi and what Mississippi would have been required to do to receive it. Well, it's it's probably the most atrocious decision that this administration has made not to expand Medicaid to include our working poor. We fund general Medicaid at 100% of the federal poverty level. Uh, we Our plan was to take it to 138% of the federal poverty level, which would have increased the income 
statute about $10,000 a year for a family of four, which would include some two hundred and fifty to 300000 not impoverished but working Mississippians who could have insured their families, their children under Medicare, Medicaid. And this is the population that currently uh, works one, maybe two jobs. These are working mothers working with, mothers, without a husband, absolutely. But, but they can't afford health insurance. Absolutely. Their so they employer up, don't provide health insurance. They can't afford it. They're they're just literally working a couple of jobs to make ends meet and and provide the basics. And <clears throat> the federal government was so generous; it was a ninety ten match for that. Well, the first two years, I think it, it was one hundred percent. It was one hundred percent. They would. Here's here, look. In seven years, there's never been a public hearing about expanding Medicaid by the current majority. Not one. They put their head in the sand. I, I keep hoping and praying that Trump will come out with some kind of health care plan and we can call it Trump care and we can uh, slop at the trough while they take credit for doing what they had their ass and head in the sand for seven years not to do. It would be fine with that. It is a wonderful concept to expand Medicaid to as much of the population as you can because there's no greater bargain for health care than the Medicaid program. Do you, do you know of anybody who says that we shouldn't try to provide some sort of um, – payer system for everybody who shows up at hospitals? Absolutely not, including the hospitals. I mean, their uncompensated care is unbelievable. And it, I, I think... What does that we, do to them, Steve? You know more than probably most. What does that do to a, to a small hospital in Mississippi well, that it has bankrupts to take them? A, it, it, it actually puts them in a position to where they literally cannot operate in the black at all because the more rural the county, the more impoverished usually it is. Therefore, you have less people that have any kind of health care, especially even these people who are working jobs that don't pay the wages that other jobs might would pay. And, And so it's just a vicious revolving door of nothingness is what it is. It pulls down the hospital. It does not provide the level of Health care, it's really a two-tiered system, and, and we shouldn't have that. Uh, because you haven't got money, you should be able to get well if you're sick in so, Mississippi. So obviously our leadership was opposed to expanding Medicaid in Mississippi for whatever reason. But Still are. But let's talk about the hospitals uh, who, you know, I guess by and large we would consider these folks who run hospitals to, to lean Republican. Where were they on the issue of expanding Medicaid. Well, they, they, they did not come forward like they should have. They could have. But they wanted it, didn't they? They wanted it. They wanted it from their closet, and they would tell you how valuable it was. We would have meetings, for example, lo- local meetings at the North Mississippi Medical Center, and they would just beg, beg for a, a, a bill to expand Medicaid because they had factored it in through their financial wizards what it would do if that group of people were un, were insured instead of uncompensated to their bottom line and what it would do to private paying folks, quite frankly, and how it could stabilize the overall cost of health care if more people had an insurance plan. Right, because the theory is that those of us who pay a premium for health insurance are paying some for those that don't have. Exactly. So when folks show up on the emergency room door and cost it costs three times as much to treat them there. That cost has to be borne in the system That's somehow. Right. That's right. And, and the, the idea is that we bear some of that when we pay our premiums, right? No ifs, ands, and buts about it, properly said. Uh, you know, it's just it's a sin, and it's always going to be a stain on this 
administration that they didn't do something about that. I don't know what the federal government's going to ultimately do uh, with Medicaid and Medicare, but uh, in Mississippi, we lost a wonderful opportunity to not only improve the health care of our citizens, to improve the economic viability of our health care providers, especially our hospitals, but, yeah, even our rural clinics, our nurse practitioners. And then the rest of the story is there's probably not a better spinoff economy than the medical economy. We would have brought millions, actually billion dollars. What's the, the estimate on how much money Mississippi would I think it was $1.6 billion if we had accepted. I think that was per year. It, that was per one year. One estimate yeah. I saw was 12 to $15 billion over yeah. a 10-year over period. Over a 10-year period, you're right. Yeah. You're exactly right. So we just we just didn't do anything with that. And to hell with it. I mean, you know, that's just the sort of the attitude. And I don't know what we can do about that, but just weep and moan. Well, there's always elections. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Yes, sir. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing new Firehouse Pairs. Pair your favorite small sub with a signature side, like the awesome five-cheese mac and cheese. And remember, a portion of every purchase at Firehouse Subs goes towards helping first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations only, Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase.